Boosters may be the hot item this Christmas. The lead starts right now. New data that the third time's the charm to keep away the new COVID variant as it pops up in nearly half the states in the U.S. Verdict watch and the trial of actor Jussie Smollett. Could he go to prison for allegedly staging a phony hate crime against himself and then lying to police? Plus, secret Santas and scandals. The U.K.'s prime minister now in hot water for allegedly throwing a Christmas party during peak COVID lockdowns. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin today with the health lead and the first real signs that existing vaccines might protect against the new Omicron variant of coronavirus. Pfizer today revealing new lab research that finds three doses of its vaccine will provide even better protection, a 25-fold increase in antibody levels compared to just two doses. President Biden calling the announcement encouraging. That's a lab report. There's more study going on, but that's very, very encouraging. Right now, about 72% of the adult U.S. population is vaccinated. Only about a quarter, however, have received a booster shot. And as CNN's Alexandra Field reports for us now, that number will surely have to tick up as Omicron spreads into 21 states. To be protected of Omicron, you really need a three-dose series of vaccination. Promising news from Pfizer on the efficacy of its vaccine against the Omicron variant based on early data. Three doses against Omicron are almost equivalent to the two doses effectiveness we had against the the wild type, the original variant. The company saying just two doses may still provide protection against severe disease, but adding that a booster increases protection by about 25 times. Dovetailing with that data, a very small study in South Africa showing the variant can partly evade Pfizer protection and that boosters are likely to better protect people. Enough to raise the question of whether the definition of fully vaccinated will change. It's going to be a matter of when, not if. Just about 25% of vaccinated Americans have received a booster shot. The CDC is closely tracking new Omicron cases, now confirmed in at least 21 states, also linked to an anime convention in New York City involving 53,000 people. Data from this investigation will likely provide some of the earliest looks in this country on the transmissibility of the variant. So far, Omicron cases are generally described as mild. Peter McGinn, the first confirmed case of Omicron in the U.S., was vaccinated and boosted. I had light fatigue, uh, a runny nose and a sore throat, and after a day, those symptoms went away. The Delta variant still accounts for virtually all cases in the U.S., now seeing surges in new cases in parts of the Midwest and Northeast. Michigan, New Hampshire and Maine all hitting record high hospitalizations. I really wanted to get the booster, but a little stressful, especially with the holidays and stuff coming up. And Jake, while we are starting to see how the vaccines are holding up against Omicron, there are a lot more questions that still need to be answered about Omicron, like whether or not this variant is more transmissible. We could be getting closer to an answer there. The World Health Organization saying that there are studies going on in the UK and in southern African countries right now, and they are expecting to release some of the data from those studies on Friday. Jake? All right, Alexandra Field, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, right now, only about a quarter of the fully vaccinated population has received a booster shot. 
And no state can claim more than half of its vaccinated population has gotten the booster. Are we in trouble as we head into the holidays? Well, we, we know how to handle this, Jake. Now, with what we've learned over the last two years, uh, the, the largest problem is still the, the unvaccinated in terms of potential trouble, in terms of uh, severe illness, in terms of hospitals uh, potentially becoming overwhelmed. If you look at boosters, it's interesting, and look at the willingness to get boosters. As you mentioned, around a quarter of people have received their boosters. What we've seen with Omicron, though, is there's definitely been a shift in terms of willingness to get it. Uh, you can see definitely will, 37%. You hear a lot of reports of being challenging to get boosters right now because there's a lot, lot of people wanting them at the same time. It's only about 18% at the bottom of that that says probably will not or definitely will not. So uh, there, there's, you know, the boosters are available. Uh, people should get them now if, if they're thinking about it, which a lot of people are. One thing that is a concern, Jake, overall going into the holidays is still Delta and just the amount of transmission of this uh, virus that's, that's still happening. So as you think about holiday parties and things like that, if you're a vaccinated party or a vaccinated group of people, a lot less to, to be concerned about. But testing still important for the reasons that you see on the map there. There's a lot of virus out there. So uh, if you can add testing into that and improve ventilation, I think that really decreases the likelihood of concern. So this announcement that uh, Omicron uh, can be staved off uh, if you have three doses of Pfizer, this announcement comes from Pfizer. Uh, They make the vaccine. They make a lot of money from the vaccine. I assume health experts and officials don't just take as gospel claims by pharmaceutical company CEOs, right? Yeah, I mean, we we need to hear from the CDC on this, ultimately. I mean, these are laboratory studies where they will take the 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 blood of people who have been uh, vaccinated and boosted and they'll put that in a in a test tube with the virus and they see what happens so that's uh, that's that's data it's uh, what Pfizer sort of talked about sort of match the data that we've seen out of South Africa but these are small samples so far there hasn't been a lot of data overall on the impact of of boosters on the neutralizing event of uh, Omicron. What Pfizer said this morning when I spoke to the CMO was that it increases your antibody uh, levels by about 25 fold. So that should be a significant sort of boost and, and protective against Omicron, but you're right. We need to hear from the CDC. We need to know the real world impact of that booster in terms of uh, decreasing the likelihood of illness. So you asked Pfizer's chief scientific officer whether Americans should wait for an Omicron specific vaccine before getting boosted, uh, here's what he said to you. Where do we need a variant vaccine or there may be need for additional boosts as we get into uh, spring 22, that needs to be evaluated. We do believe that the third boost will carry you well protected for Omicron through the winter and into the March season. How likely do you think it is that the general population will ultimately have to get a booster shot every three to six months here on out? Well, you know, Jake, I think we really truly don't know the answer to that yet. But I will tell you that um, two things. One is that they did design a a Delta-specific booster as well, which we didn't end up needing. They designed a Beta-specific booster, which we didn't end up needing. Many people have said that ultimately this may just be a three-shot series period. Kind of like we do for hepatitis B. You get those shots earlier in life and then you're sort of protected for the majority of your life. Some people will need a booster decades down the road. So that is one potential scenario that may play out. 
Uh, flu is another you know, sort of example that people will say, well, that, that's a yearly shot. But the flu virus actually mutates a lot more than this virus. Hmm. I mean, even though we've talked a lot about variants, it's still a, a fraction of the number of variants that flu develops in any given year. So I, I don't think we know. It could be three shots and done, if some, as some have suggested. But I think within the next few months, we should know. There's this chilling new study uh, on the Global Health Security Index finding that the whole world, the whole world remains unprepared for the next pandemic. Most countries are underprepared even for small outbreaks of disease. After everything that has happened in the past two years, are you surprised by this report? Uh, I'm, I'm not surprised. I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit shocking uh, to hear. And if you just look at the, the, the trajectory of the pandemic in the United States and compare it to the rest of the world, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough to, to look at that, Jake. I mean, the United States was supposed to be the best prepared country in the world before this pandemic started. And we had the highest rates of infection, had the highest rates of death you know, per capita uh, compared to a lot of other countries. So it's disappointing. Um, and if you, if you really drill down into that report, I think it was shocking for the uh, authors of the report, but they, it really came down to a, in a significant erosion of trust in government. That's really what drove that blue line to be so much different than the yellow line. I mean, it happened in other countries as well, but you can clearly see the, the, the difference there. I think one thing that keeps coming up if you talk to preparedness experts is the idea of thinking of potential future pandemics almost like we think of our Department of Defense. You, you, you invest in the infrastructure to, to keep your country safe uh, in a DOD sort of model. Pandemics are a threat to the country. Instead of litigating all these decisions about masks and vaccines and boosters, if they are all sort of um, uh, codified in some way through a DOD-type uh, approach, it might make a big difference. Finally, Sanjay, you interviewed President Biden's new drug czar, Dr. Raul Gupta, today, uh, just as the U.S. marks this hideous record 100,000 overdose deaths during the pandemic. Tell us what he had to say to you. Well, I think there's two things that really jumped out. One is the, the emphasis on harm reduction which is a shift in thinking, the idea of, of protecting drug users, uh, trying to save their lives. It's a controversial issue. But also that fentanyl, illicit fentanyl, has far and away, Jake, become the drug that's driving these, this overdose epidemic. Sixty-plus uh, percent of overdose deaths were in some way related to fentanyl. Here, here's what Dr. Gupta said. We have seen a crisis for which harm reduction is going to have to be one of the very important tools in our toolbox. It is for that very reason that this administration has made harm reduction for the first time part of its federal policy. And as an evidence-based physician that has spent his... Go ahead, Sanjay. Sorry, that, that, that was, that, that's a shift in thinking, really, Jake. I mean, you know, this idea of really leaning into the idea of reducing harm, even if it may potentially enable drug users to, to use more drugs, it's, it's controversial, but you, but you heard his, his point of view on that. And we're going to have more on that later in the show, uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks. The one thing President Biden says is not an option if Russia invades Ukraine. Plus, Instagram accused of being a cesspool when it comes to teenage girls and cashing in on it. Right now, Congress is demanding answers from the Instagram CEO. Stay with us. In our politics lead right now, President Biden is in Kansas City, Missouri, pitching his domestic agenda, talking roads and bridges on the heels of some good economic news, including a forecasted plunge in gas prices from their November peak at an average of $3.39 a gallon, down to a predicted $3.01 in January. But 
President Biden is also focusing on fears of a pending additional invasion of Ukraine by Russia. As CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports, today Biden gave us some firsthand insight into his crucial two-hour conversation with Vladimir Putin. I am absolutely confident he got the message. President Biden striking a cautious yet confident tone today that Russian President Vladimir Putin understands the grave fallout from invading Ukraine. There were no minced words. It was polite, but I made it very clear. If, in fact, he invades Ukraine, there will be severe consequences. Severe consequences. Economic consequences like none he's ever seen or ever have been seen in terms of being imposed. One day after a two-hour tense meeting between the two leaders, Biden ruling out sending American troops to Ukraine. That is not on the table. But vowing to backstop European allies threatened by any Russian provocations. We would probably also be required to reinforce our, our presence in NATO countries to reassure particularly those in the Eastern Front. I made it clear that we would provide the defensive capability to the uh, Ukrainians as well. But Biden also opening the door to a potential diplomatic off-ramp to address Russia's concerns about Ukraine ever joining the NATO military alliance. Today, Biden shining a light on his domestic achievements, visiting Kansas City on his tour touting the bipartisan infrastructure law. The White House unveiling a new logo, building a better America to help explain and implement the $1.2 trillion spending program designed to upgrade transportation and water systems, build roads and bridges, and far more. We're here talking about rebuilding America, investing in America, building a better America. It comes as the White House is eyeing optimistic news on falling oil and gas prices and early signs of easing inflation. In Congress, a bipartisan agreement is also at hand to raise the debt ceiling to avoid default. The president also signing an executive order today aimed at cutting the government's carbon emissions 65 percent by the end of the decade on a path of net zero emissions by 2050. Now, even as President Biden talked about what he called an infrastructure decade ahead, Jake, he did pause at the beginning of this speech to pay tribute to Bob Dole, of course, longtime Republican senator from neighboring Kansas. He called him an American giant with moral and physical courage. Jeff Salony in Kansas City, thanks so much. Let's turn to our world lead now in the growing conflict between Russia and Ukraine. CNN's Kylie Atwood is live uh, at the State Department for us, but let's start with CNN's Matthew Chance, who's in uh, Kiev. Matthew, given what we heard from President Biden today, um, how does what his version of events and that phone call with Putin square with what the, the Kremlin had to say about that conversation? Um, I mean, there's some areas of overlap that there's some parts which obviously the Kremlin are emphasizing more than the U.S. side. Um, on the whole, Putin described the tone of the video call between him and the U.S. president as uh, open, substantive and constructive. And he said he hoped the U.S. side uh, thought of the talks um, in the same way. Uh, Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, confirmed that there would be you know, a series of meetings going forward and a special diplomatic structure set up to discuss security issues, particularly security in Eastern Europe and uh, Ukraine in particular. So that's something that you know, is obviously substantial and concrete that has come out of these talks. But you know, Putin pushed back on this idea that he or Russia was poised to invade Ukraine. He said it was provocative. Russia is pursuing a peaceful foreign policy, he says, but it has the right to uh, defend itself. And he went on in his uh, conversations today, in his statements today, about how NATO poses a threat, an existential threat, potentially uh, to Russia and must be kept back from Russia's borders, Jake. 
And Kylie, you have some new reporting on how U.S. officials say Russia's military is preparing for a potential invasion of Ukraine. Jake, no doubt about it, Russian forces have assumed an aggressive posture here, right? Just yesterday, the top three State Department official told you that Russia has forces on all three sides of Ukraine's border. She said the U.S. has never quite seen something like this before. And before her testimony uh, during the Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing, she said that what Ukraine is facing now is a Russia that is using forces that are more aggressive and more lethal than they were using in 2014. She compared the playbook, but essentially said what they're doing now is more aggressive. And she said that is why the Biden administration, of course, with its allies in Europe, is preparing for all contingencies, even though the U.S. still doesn't know the intentions or the timing of what Putin will do here. And and on that subject, Matthew, the the Undersecretary of State, Victoria Nuland, told me yesterday uh, that Russia might try to use Belarus to get into Ukraine. How big of a concern is that for Ukrainian officials? Um, It's a big concern. That threat from what would be their northern border is a very real one for Ukrainian security services. I put the question actually about a month ago to to, uh, Alexander Lukashenko, the uh, the leader of Belarus himself, and he said, no, we would never be used in that way. But uh, Ukrainian intelligence sources tell me uh, here in Kiev uh, that there are joint patrols, air patrols being uh, held now from November the 25th between the Russian Air Force and the Belarusian Air Force. And most concerning, a lot of the troops that could potentially from Russia be used to invade Ukraine uh, are very close to the Belarusian border. And so it's opened that concern up that if there is an invasion, although Russia says there isn't going to be one, um, then they could use Belarusian territory to come in through the north and to put pressure on Ukraine in that way, Jake. And Matthew, how how are Ukrainian leaders reacting to the U.S.'s involvement? Well, I mean, they they, they haven't formally properly reacted yet in the sense that there's going to be a conversation on the telephone tomorrow here between President Biden and President Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian leader. He has made some initial remarks to reporters saying they thought it was positive that this call took place because it meant that um, that President Biden was now personally involved in resolving the, 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 uh, the conflict in eastern Ukraine. He also said he thought it was a victory for Ukraine. The United States was still supporting its sovereignty and territorial integrity. Kylie, what are the next steps for the U.S., for the Biden administration? Well, listen, the White House said that President Biden and President Putin ordered their teams to have follow-on discussions. We heard similar from the Kremlin earlier today, indicating that they are both invested in the possibility of a diplomatic path forward. We will watch to see what the results are of those conversations. Kylie Atwood, Matthew Chance, thanks to both of you. Video of the incident sent shockwaves across social media and took a nation Closer to the edge, today opening statements begin in the trial of the police officer who shot and killed a man while shouting, Taser! Taser! Stay with us. A pair of significant court cases in our national lead now. First up, jury deliberations are currently underway in the trial of actor Jesse Smollett. The former Empire star faces six counts of disorderly conduct related to accusations that he staged a fake hate crime against himself, and then lied to Chicago police about it. This took place in 2019. CNN's Sarah Seidner joins us now live from outside the Chicago courtroom. Sarah, closing arguments wrapped up a little while ago. Tell us the message from both sides. 
Uh, the jury, as you know, Jake, is now deliberating in this case after a seven-day trial. Uh, we heard quite a bit, uh, the, 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 both the prosecution and the defense, uh, standing in front of the jury and giving them their final word on what uh, they believe the jury should take into consideration. The prosecution going after Jesse Smollett. Uh, this is all about that January 19th, 2019 uh, incident that Smollett reported to police uh, that he claimed he was attacked by men wearing MAGA hats who were screaming racial and homophobic epithets at him uh, in the middle of the night uh, during a polar vortex here in Chicago. The prosecution basically laying out their case again to the jury saying this, in January 2019, Mr. Smollett developed this secret plan to carry out a fake hate crime. He falsely reported it. And I told you that is a crime. Mr. Smollett failed to tell the truth and made many false statements. He lied under oath to you, the jurors. He lied to police. He lacks any credibility whatsoever. He was tailoring his testimony. That is what the prosecution wants the jury to hold on to as they look through the evidence. But the defense got up and, and talked about Jesse Smollett uh, for a bit. But then they hammered away at those two brothers, one of whom was Jesse Smollett's trainer. And here is what the defense had to say about those two brothers who testified that indeed they were paid by Smollett to carry out this fake hate crime on Smollett so that he could get more media attention. Here's what the defense said about those two brothers and their testimony. The blame the victim scam. It is better than the African print scam. Don't fall for it. Now that's coming from uh, Smollett's attorney, Mr. Uche, who is Nigerian, as are the Osendario brothers. So he said, you know, I can say this. I am also from uh, the, the country that they are from. He said the friendship is a one-way friendship. They are not who they say they are, the Osendario brothers. The brothers are like wolves who are disguised as sheep in a hen house. So those are the two main arguments. They're basically trying to say that many people lied on the stand about Jesse Smollett. Jesse Smollett maintaining his innocence. The jury now has all the evidence and will deliberate. Sarah, Sarah, what sort of penalty is Smollett facing if he is convicted? Uh, so disorderly conduct uh, is for a false crime is a class four felony. It means uh, either $25,000 uh, in fines or up to three years in prison. But that is uh, very much up to the judge. It's to his complete discretion. So we will see what happens, whether this jury comes back with guilty or not. Jake. Sarah Seidner, thanks so much. In Minnesota, opening statements in the trial of a former Minneapolis police officer who killed an unarmed black man during a routine traffic stop. Kim Potter claims that she mistook her gun for a taser when she fatally shot Dante Wright in April. The whole incident was caught by her police body cam. We should warn viewers, this video is rather graphic. CNN's Adrian Broadus joins us now live from outside the courthouse. And Adrian, uh, Potter faces first and second degree manslaughter charges. What did lawyers say about those charges today? 
Jake, defense attorneys said when officers fired those shots that killed Dante Wright, she was trying to protect her partner. They also said those officers were doing legitimate police work. By contrast, the prosecutors say officers like the former police officer, Potter, took an oath to protect life, not to take life. Jake? And Wright's mother gave emotional testimony today, you say. What did she have to say? She was the first witness the prosecution called to the stand. She talked about the final conversation she had with her son via Facebook Messenger. He called her when he was pulled over by the officers, and he asked his mom what should she do, what should he do. She tried to comfort him, and here's a little of that conversation. I heard the officer telling Dante, no. Um, and I heard Dante say, no, I'm not. Don't, it sounded like he said, don't run. Dante said, no, I'm not. And then I heard them say, somebody tell somebody to hang up the phone. And then that's all I heard. And she said she called back repeatedly. She was unable to get an answer from her son, of course. So she FaceTimed the person that he was with. And during that FaceTime call, she was able to see her son. She says a neighbor took her to the scene where the shooting happened. And he was lying in the middle of the road, his body covered with a sheet. She was able to identify him based on his sneakers, which she could see from beneath the sheet. And she called that the worst day of her life, Jake. Adrian Broadus in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thanks so much. Another former White House official could soon be facing jail time for trying to protect, protect Trump. That's next. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows may soon find himself in the very same legal fight as Steve Bannon. Today, January 6th Committee Chairman Benny Thompson announced he has, quote, no choice but to move forward with contempt of Congress charges after Meadows stopped cooperating with the committee. Joining us now to discuss CNN's Ryan Nobles. Ryan, Meadows' case is different from Bannon's because Meadows actually provided the committee with some documents, right? That's right, Jake. Uh, 6,000 documents in total. And he also had expressed a willingness to come before the committee and answer their questions before in an abrupt about face in the last 48 hours, where he then sent the committee a letter and said that he could no longer cooperate with them because he was concerned uh, about things like executive privilege. But the committee in this letter back to Meadows, where they warn him that he will now face a criminal contempt referral talk about how they'd like to learn more about some of these documents that Meadows did provide the committee among them. Uh, a November 6, 2020 text where he said to a member of Congress that I love it in response uh, to discussing alternate electors around the January 6 certification. Early in January of 2021, he had text to organizers of the January 6 rally. And then on January 5th, 2021, he sent an email that had a 38-page PowerPoint briefing that was titled Election Fraud, Foreign Interference, and Options for 6 Jan. Now, even though the committee says they have this information, they obviously want to know more about these text exchanges, these conversations that Meadows was having, and if it contributed attributed to the riots here on January 6th, they're not going to get that opportunity right now because that deposition, deposition scheduled for today, Meadows skipped, which is one of the reasons that criminal contempt seems to be the next step. And, and Ryan, how soon could the committee refer Mark Meadows uh, to, uh, for a vote for contempt of Congress on the House floor? 
That's right, Jake. It's, of course, a process. The committee has to vote it out. It has to be voted on uh, by the entire House of Representatives. I asked the chairman, Benny Thompson, about this last night. He told me it wouldn't take long, but suggested that perhaps the formal process won't take place until next week. Remember, Jake, the committee has already voted out of committee a criminal contempt referral against former DOJ official Jeffrey Clark. The full House is yet to vote on that as well, pending another deposition opportunity for Clark. So the committee has a lot of work to do as it relates to this particular line of enforcement as they try and get information as it relates to January 6th. All right, Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. Britain's Prime Minister getting a visit from the ghost of Christmas past after a video no one was supposed to see is made public. Stay with us. In our world lead, it's something like rules for thee, but not for me. At least one advisor to British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has quit today after a leaked video showed her joking about the Prime Minister allegedly throwing a Christmas party for Downing Street staff during last year's coronavirus lockdown in that country. As CNN Salma Abdelaziz reports, Johnson is now promising a full investigation, but some rivals are already calling for his resignation. I now fear that my Allegra Stratton, the spokesman for Downing Street, became a household name overnight in the UK. On Wednesday, she resigned on her doorstep. My remarks seemed to make light of the rules, rules that people were doing everything to obey. That was never my intention. The senior British government official made headlines, appearing to mock COVID rules and joking about a Christmas party last year. I went home. (laughs) (laughs) This fictional party was a business meeting. (laughs) And it was not socially distanced. (laughs) If true, it would be a brazen violation of COVID restrictions. This video, obtained by CNN affiliate ITV, shows aides rehearsing for a briefing four days after the alleged party. But while Downing Street staff giggled on the video about cheese and crackers, the UK was in the grips of a deadly rise of COVID-19 cases. Safia was caring for her elderly father that day. She says he contracted coronavirus during the Christmas period and later died of the virus. We had five people at my dad's funeral. Um, I was able to actually be with my dad when he died, me, my mum, my brother. Um, were able to be there, which I consider a huge privilege because so many other bereaved family members didn't have that opportunity. On December 18th alone, the day the Downing Street party allegedly took place, more than 500 people were reported dead from COVID-19 in the UK. Everyone needs to start leaving now! And this is how police handled other festive gatherings, cracking down and handing out spot fines. Prime Minister... For days, the Prime Minister maintains that no party even took place. That all guidance was followed uh, completely. That's not true. What I can tell you is that uh, all the guidelines were observed. On Wednesday, the Prime Minister told Parliament he would launch an investigation, but admitted no wrongdoing. I was also furious to see that clip. But I repeat, Mr Speaker, that I have been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged, that there was no party and that, and that no COVID rules were broken. So the British people put the health of others above themselves and followed the rules. Isn't the Prime Minister ashamed that his Downing Street couldn't do the same? The day after the alleged party, Boris Johnson effectively cancelled Christmas for the entire nation limiting gatherings. 
Two days later, most of the UK was back under Tier 4 restrictions, essentially a full lockdown. Now, as the country once again is fighting a variant, Omicron, many are asking if the Prime Minister has the moral authority to lead the country. Now, Jake, the Prime Minister has promised an internal investigation into exactly what happened, but I can tell you in the court of public opinion, he's already losing hearts and minds. I want to paint you a picture of exactly what was going on in this country around that date, that alleged date the party took place, December 18th. On that date, this city was in tier three rules, meaning no mixing indoors. A day later, December 19th, that's when the prime minister took to the airwaves and said, you have to cancel your Christmas plans. If you care about your loved ones, sacrifice Christmas this year so that you can see them safe and healthy next year. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the message there. And a few days later, the country was in full lockdown. At the time, a variant, the Kent variant, was sweeping through the UK. Thousands of people were in hospital. You can imagine the frustration people feel that the rules did not seem to apply, if this is true, to those in power. Jake. All right, Salma Abdelaziz, thank you so much. In Germany, the end of an era. For the first time in nearly 16 years, Angela Merkel is not the chancellor of Germany today. Olaf Scholz succeeded her as the new leader of the German government after serving as vice chancellor and finance minister for the past four years. CNN's Frederick Pleitkin joins us now live from Berlin. And Frederick, the new chancellor, has some really big shoes to fill and is already facing some difficult challenges. Yeah, facing some immense challenges, uh, Jake. And I have to say, one of the things uh, about Germany is that the transition of power really was very smooth. You could see Angela Merkel today, after those 16 years in power, handing over power to Olaf Scholz, wishing him uh, all the best and saying that she would stand by his side if he needed any help along the way. And one of the interesting things that Olaf Scholz has done is he really started trying to tackle the most important thing that he's going to have to deal with, which is, of course, the coronavirus pandemic here in Germany. Right now, the numbers in Germany not good at all. In fact, today they had the highest death toll since February. And Olaf Scholz already started working on new stricter COVID measures together with Angela Merkel before he even took power. And so he's definitely trying to get a strong start. Then the other things, obviously, the economy, but then also um, foreign policy is a big issue for this government. And right now, especially that threat in eastern Ukraine with Russia amassing those forces there. And one of the things that Olaf Scholz has pointed out many times is that he wants a very strong transatlantic relationship. He's a big fan of U.S. President Joe Biden, and he says he really values the new multilateralism, as he put it uh, yesterday and today, that uh, President Biden has brought into U.S. relations with its allies in Europe. So Merkel exits uh, just shy of the record for the longest chancellorship. I believe that was set by Hermit, mm. Hermit uh, Cole, Helmut Cole. What, what kind of legacy do you yep. think uh, yep. uh, she's leaving behind? Mm. She's she's nine days shy uh, of Helmut Kohl. So yeah, she, he is still he is still uh, the record holder. Um, she, you know what? I think that her main legacy is really uh, bringing Germany to the world stage and making it a big power in the world. Really using a lot of soft power. I mean, if you look at the things that Angela Merkel is going to be remembered for, it really is crisis management. Uh, when you look at the Greek debt crisis, you look at the euro crisis. She quite possibly single-handedly saved the common European currency. And then if you look back to 2015, definitely the refugee crisis where you had more than a million people uh, coming into Europe and Angela Merkel essentially opening the doors of Europe and letting people in. Those are definitely the things that she's going to be remembered for. And the other thing for a lot of Germans, of course, also is the fact that Germany really had a strong economy in that time as well, Jake. All right, Fred Pleiken, thanks so much. It's been called toxic to teenagers. 
Now Instagram is rolling out new safety measures, but are these just empty promises? The head of the social media company is testifying before Congress right now. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead on Jake Tapper. This hour, what to do, if anything, about Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, who continues to spew anti-Muslim bigotry. Democrats are divided as one progressive introduces a resolution to strip Boebert of her committee assignments. Plus, the record surge in drug overdoses in the U.S. We're going to talk to a congressman who lost his nephew to this epidemic and is pushing for one very specific change to help save lives. And leading this hour... Right now, the head of Instagram testifying before a Senate panel, Adam Masseri, facing tough questions from lawmakers about the negative impact of the popular app on kids. Masseri defending the platform, saying he believes Instagram can be a positive force. As lawmakers allege, the app does not do enough to protect its young users. As CNN's Donny O'Sullivan reports for us now, the Instagram chief's testimony comes after months of scrutiny over the harmful effects of Instagram and Facebook, particularly on young users. Self-policing depends on trust. The trust is gone. The head of Instagram facing a disturbing picture of his platform and the harm it causes, especially among kids. Do you view the kids as a feeder way for people to get into your product? Have you not, have you not done things to get more teenagers interested in your product? Are you not worried about losing them to other platforms? You better tell the truth. You're under oath. It is the latest round of tough questions from lawmakers for Meta, formerly Facebook, which owns Instagram. Shouldn't children and parents have the right to report dangerous material abuse and get a response? Senator, yes, I believe we try and respond to all reports. And if we ever fail to do so, that is a mistake that we should correct. Instagram embroiled in controversy since whistleblower Francis Haugen leaked internal documents from the company about the harms of the social media platform on young people, particularly teenage girls. Facebook's internal research is aware that there are a variety of problems facing children on Instagram that are, they know that severe harm is happening to children. Masseri today pushing back. I firmly believe that Instagram and that the internet more broadly can be a positive force in young people's lives. I also know that sometimes young people can come to Instagram dealing with difficult things in their lives. I believe that Instagram can help in those critical moments. The Instagram boss being asked about research released this week that shows teenagers are easily able to find accounts advertising the sale of drugs like Xanax and Adderall, its algorithms even promoting these accounts to some users. Accounts selling drugs or any other regulated goods are not allowed on the platform. Apparently they are. Senator... Respectfully, I don't think you can take one or two examples and indicate that that is indicative of what happens on the platform more broadly. Missouri pledging the company will do more to protect young users, but it's too little too late for people like Ian Russell, who lost his daughter Molly to suicide in 2017. There was no sign of any mental ill health in Molly before her death, and we couldn't work out what could possibly trigger it. Russell says he looked at his daughter's social media and was disturbed by what he saw on platforms, including Instagram. Having had a glimpse of what Molly was exposed to, I think I now understand why she was pushed to do what she did. Adding to the pressures on the social media giant recently, a bipartisan group of state attorneys general launched an investigation into the potential harms of Instagram for children and teens, meta-claiming the allegations are false. 
And Jake, that hearing just ending on Capitol Hill in the last few seconds, uh, what we heard was a lot of frustration from senators, frustration uh, that Masseri wasn't being forthcoming enough about data uh, and information about what Facebook, what Instagram, what Meta, whatever you want to call it, uh, knows about the harms it can have uh, on young people. And finally, an important point, I think, he was also asked, you know, why is it when parents uh, see stuff on the platform that they take issue with, that they think is dangerous for their kids, oftentimes stuff gets reported to Facebook and Facebook does nothing about it. Uh, Masseri says when that happens, it's a mistake. Mm-hmm. Donia Sullivan, thanks so much. Let's discuss this. With Wall Street Journal tech reporter Deepa Sitharaman and Jim Steyer, who's the founder and CEO of Common Sense Media, which focuses on media, internet, and technology safety for kids. Um, so, Sita, let me start with you. Senators uh, asked the head of Instagram about data showing that the app is addictive, and he flat out rejected the notion that it's addictive, um, which I think all of us can probably agree it's, it's pretty addictive. How does it line up uh, with all of the internal documents that you obtained from Facebook, which owns Instagram, when it comes to young users? Yeah, I don't, I'm not 100% sure how um, Adam would reconcile those public comments today with the black and white data that we see. I mean, it's not even just this teen research. The teen research shows that, you know, the usage of Instagram tended to yield or for a sizable percentage of them resulted in negative feelings about themselves or bad self-image. But more broadly, even beyond what the, the the Instagram research about teens show, there are there's other research within the company that we've reported on that shows that about one in eight users globally have some kind of problematic use, meaning they use Facebook to the exclusion of spending time with friends or doing their jobs or spending time with their kids. And so there's, there, there is definitely a problem, at least according to these documents, that show that the company has addictive properties and that they need to do something about it. So I'm not really sure how you reconcile those, that internal research with what Adam is saying publicly. And Jim, Instagram is trying to point to these new teen safety tools as examples of concrete actions they're taking. There's one function that blocks adults from messaging kids under the age of 18 unless they follow each other. Do you think these new features will do anything to actually protect kids? Absolutely not. Far too little, far too late, Jake. And actually, Deepa, thank you for your extraordinary reporting on this. No, I do not think they will do anything. They're just a PR stunt at the last minute because Adam realized he was going to be testing in front, testifying in front of Congress. And as, uh, as you said, look, the Surgeon General of the United States came out with an extraordinary plan yesterday about teen mental health. And he specifically referred to the experiences that young people, kids and teens, are having on platforms like Instagram and the impact on their social and emotional well-being. So for Adam to get up there and basically do the classic Facebook deny, deflect, distract, Oh, we'll fix this someday. This is what we've seen from this company and quite frankly, from the leadership. So I think it's it's an extraordinarily important hearing because it just exposes the sort of cynical attitude that I believe Facebook and Instagram have had to these issues that kids and teens experience on their platform. But I also think that, Jake, we're going to see for the first time, and we sure need it, bipartisan, serious legislation that reigns in Instagram, Facebook, and some of the other platforms. And the hearing, if it doesn't lead to action, will just be an exercise. But I think finally we're going to get some action out of Congress. And Deepa, given how much time you've spent reporting on how Instagram does 
harm teenagers. Uh, are you surprised by these new claims showing how easy it is for kids to buy drugs on Instagram with, with just a few clicks? Uh, you, you understand these algorithms work, uh, how these, how these algorithm, uh, algorithms work more than most Americans. I mean, I think this is part, part of a broader trend we've seen. I mean, Instagram is pretty clear that their policies don't allow drug sales. And, you know, it is in black and white. There are those rules. But the question has never been whether or not Instagram allows this kind of activity. It's how well they enforce their rules. And that's been the, the issue with Facebook or, or Meta and all of its different properties for years. It's about enforcement. And so, no, it doesn't surprise me that it's possible to find drug sales or, or, or any kind of bad content on Instagram. It's a known problem. But, you know, the company keeps saying that they're working on it, that they're putting all these kinds of resources into the issue to try to fight it. But and yet it continues to be extremely easy to find some of this content. So that's just another struggle that they're that they continue to have. Yeah. Jim, Instagram says that it removed 1.8 million pieces of drug related content in the last few months and that it will, quote, continue to improve in this area. Why is it that Instagram, which is worth billions and billions of dollars, why is it that they're always having to take these basic steps and only after their problems are widely exposed? Because fundamentally, because fundamentally, 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 they don't care, Jake. Somebody Fundamentally, calls. I apologize. Somebody's <laughs> calling you? All right. Do we, we can't hear you now, um, Jim. So, uh, so <laughs> Can you hear me? Now I can. Go ahead. Fundamentally, they don't care, you said. Fundamentally, they don't care. Fundamentally, they have a business model that, as you mentioned in your opening, really does addict kids and teens and other people. They don't really care. And so they come up with PR excuses, but it's the same pattern. And as Deepa said... The drug issue is real. It's they do not enforce their policies if they happen to have them. And at the end of the day, the big losers are kids and teens, just like our children. So this is a moment of reckoning. I really do believe that. And Mosseri's comments are just typical of when you see Mark Zuckerberg testify and also give lame excuses and not really address the fact that this is happening on their platform. So hopefully this is a big moment of reckoning for this company and that we will see Finally, major legislation that reigns them in. Deepa, Seether Raymond, uh, and uh, Jim Steyer, thanks so much to both of you uh, for your time and your insights. Appreciate it. And if you or your loved ones are experiencing any suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Or you can text HOME to 741-741 to reach the crisis text line. Both services are free and they're confidential and available 24 Seven. Coming up next, Christmas cards with a loaded message why Republican members of Congress are being criticized by Democrats for their holiday photos. Plus, breaking right now, new studies showing how a booster shot can drastically reduce the threat of COVID. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is offering no hints into how or even if her party will publicly rebuke Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert for her never-ending anti-Muslim bigotry. What action was promised, if any, to Congresswoman Omar, and are you expecting to take any action against Congresswoman Boebert? When I'm ready to announce that, I'll let you know. In newly surfaced videos, Boebert has smeared Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota uh, as a terrorist. 
Now progressives. Their voices in an open now, letter earlier today. Now progressives are pushing a resolution that could strip Boebert of her committee assignments. Let's bring in CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. And Manu, Omar told me two days ago uh, that Pelosi promised she, her that she would take action this week on Boebert, but Pelosi now seems reluctant to even talk about this. Yeah, she actually has snapped at reporters multiple times a day who have asked her directly about whether or not they will take action to punish Lauren Boebert. And this because the progressives in the House are pushing for that punishment, pushing that that Lauren Boebert should be stripped from her committee assignments in the aftermath of those comments and arguing that she should suffer the same fate as two other Republicans who came under fire from Democrats and who lost their committee spots, Paul Gosar, Marjorie Taylor, Green, and that has essentially set a precedent where the majority party can now go after minority members, minority party members, kick them out of their committee assignments if they have done something that that members find offensive. In this case, progressives say there's no reason why Boebert should be removed. But Pelosi and her leadership team clearly views this fight as a distraction, wanting to instead focus on the Democratic agenda instead. Now, I asked Pelosi at her press conference, what is the difference here between what happened with those other two Republicans and now Boebert, and why not is the action not being taken if there is any difference? What makes the Boebert situation any different? Well, it's just an intensification of their neglect. It's their responsibility to deal with their people. Well, how we deal with addressing the fear that they have instilled in the Islam, uh, with their Islamophobia and the rest is something that hopefully we can do in a bipartisan way. But now, Jake, one big reason that is driving the reluctance of the speaker to move forward is the fact that there are vulnerable Democratic members, I'm told, who are concerned about having a vote on this issue, don't believe it is necessary to have a vote on this issue. And that is raising other concerns if they were to move ahead to strip Lauren Burbert of her committee assignments. Perhaps they would not even have the votes to pull that off, given that Democrats can only afford to lose three votes in order to move ahead on anything, assuming this goes down straight along party lines here. So you're seeing the speaker, Jake, facing serious pressure from her left, but willing to move forward on another route. We'll see if she changes her mind here. But at the moment, the Democratic leadership is not willing to embrace this form of punishment. Hmm. Jake. Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Thank you so much. Let's dive into this with our panel. So earlier today, CNN's Daniela Diaz asked Pelosi if she supported uh, the resolution from Congresswoman Ayanna Presley to strip Boebert of her committee assignments. Pelosi responded, quote, it's a responsibility of Republicans to discipline their members. And then Diaz says Pelosi scolded her for not asking about the legislation that passed in through the House last night on the raising the debt ceiling and a colossally huge uh, defense uh, funding bill. And Pelosi's taken this, this tone all day. Uh, she's obviously irritated by this. Lauren Boebert is a, is a bigot, and obviously her comments are reprehensible. But do you think Pelosi is concerned about the fact that this vote— doesn't put food on anyone's table, doesn't help bring down inflation, doesn't help provide daycare. I mean, what's going on? Well, particularly at a time when the president and Democrats are trying to get his Build Back Better agenda across the finish line before the end of the year, and you have Congress expected to leave town in the next few days, potentially could come back for that debt limit that debt limit vote. But this is certainly not what they, Democrats, even want to be focused on at this point, Jake. And... Uh, Olivia, progressive Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, she's leading uh, this resolution. Here's what she's saying about why she's taking this route. Inaction is to be complicit. So um, we need accountability, 
Representative Boebert should be stripped of her committees. As I said, uh, the world is watching. This is not just about Representative Omar. Uh, it is about uh, every Muslim that calls this country home. And I might add also a formidable voting block. Traditionally, would something like this be be sent to the ethics committee? What's the the more normal way to do this? Sure, that's one of the that's one of the possibilities here. You know, one of the one of the challenges for Democrats is they don't have a lot of arrows in their quiver to respond to this. Um, not only because doing the right thing might actually get you more of the wrong things, since some of these uh, members of Congress are actually just attention hounds, but also because it's not it's not that significant a punishment for some of these folks. I mean, this is like passing a law that that would forbid me from being a member of the American gymnastics team at the Olympics. Essentially, these are not legislative titans. Um, stripping them of their committees is not exactly going to suddenly undermine their, their lavish legislative agendas. Um, but so it puts, it puts the Democrats in a bind because on the one hand, yes, this is a, a, it's hard calling it a distraction because they're trying to respond to some really ugly language. But this and is death a, threats have come to, right. to Ilhan Omar, Congresswoman Omar. And again, the context of all of this, of course, is, is if we'd seen this 20 years ago, we might have said, ugh, that's terrible. But this is after January 6th. This is after uh, uh, the um, the surge in death threats against lawmakers. Yeah. And that creates a very different context. That's where I think simply referring it to the Ethics Committee or, or, or taking another traditional route just might not feel all that satisfying to the people who've been on the receiving end of, of those threats. Congressman, how do you think the Democrats should handle this, or, or not at all? I think Pelosi's playing it very smart. Uh, having been a chairman of the Ethics Committee, I think she's correct that she, she should refer this matter to the Ethics Committee. There are 10 members, five Democrat, five Republican. Let them sort this out. This allegation, this, this issue of, uh, of, uh, of uh, uh, Boebert is one where she, she didn't make a death threat. It was a bad joke. It was a lot Islamophobic. You know, Green and Gosar said things, that, uh, frankly, much more incendiary. And I think they dealt with that appropriately. But at this moment, I think uh, she's got to be starting to think about retaliation. She's probably concerned. Not all her members think this is a good idea to vote on this right now. So I think get it to the Ethics Committee. Let them make a recommendation. You don't have to bring these things right to the floor. Go through a process and then sort out how you deal with this and other types of incendiary comments. And, Maria, there's this other thing going on with Boebert. Uh, she's in a back and forth with a progressive congresswoman, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Boebert, her family uh, photo shows her four sons, ages 8 to 15, holding a gun. This was in response to a different Christmas card-type image that Congressman Tom Massey put out, holding guns. Just a, That came out just a couple days after mm-hmm. the... Uh, that horrible shooting in Michigan. So AOC responded to the post tweeting, quote, tell me again where Christ said, quote, use the commemoration of my birth to flex violent weapons for personal political gain. And to that, Boebert replied, quote, AOC uses her position as a congresswoman to attack my boys with their Christmas presents. Not a good look. Sandy, first of all, I'm not sure who Sandy is exactly. But second of all, like, I mean, a lot of the American people you know, they're not going to read about the $780 billion defense bill. They're right. going to look up on Twitter and they're going to see, see this. this back and forth. Yeah. And, and I think that is what Democrats are afraid of in terms of, and the White House, frankly, taking the uh, focus off of what they're actually trying to do, to your point, to help people in these really tough times. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, these things do have to be responded to, whether it's the Ethics Committee or anything else, these things should not go unanswered or unpunished, Jake. I mean, I, as a mother, when I saw that picture, Bobert's picture, I felt for her children. Uh, you know, I don't think AOC was attacking her children. AOC was attacking Republicans' hypocrisy in terms of their whole issue of, you know, uh, leftists and progressives going after Christmas. So that's the point that AOC was trying to make. It might have gone over Bobert's head. It would not surprise me. But the fact of the matter is when she acts like this, when Boebert acts like this, Marjorie Taylor Greene, all of them, 
it focuses on there's sort of like a lack of the empathy gene there. And there's no humanity there. There's no civility. And even though for a lot of progressives and a lot of Democrats, that is a huge issue in terms of governing, that it shows that Republicans have no interest whatsoever in actually governing, it's tough to make that an election time issue. Well, I don't know. It certainly shows that some Republicans aren't interested in governing. In fact, uh, Republican Texas Congressman Dan Crenshaw, before a lot of this, uh, said something about this uh, and his colleagues that are provocateurs, to use a nice term for what they are. There's two types of members of Congress. There's performance artists, there's legislators. Now, the performance artists are the ones that get all the attention. They're the ones you think are more conservative because they know how to say slogans real well. They know how to recite the lines that they know that our voters want to hear. He sounds a little irritated with the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Lauren Boberts of the world. He is, and he should be. And uh, I'm, I'm glad he said what he said, because I used to have to deal with this, too. Guys like me would be called by the hard right guys. They'd call me a squish, a rhino, a bedwetter, you know, a capitulator. And I was used to I didn't care. But the guys who really were angry about those types of tactics on the hard right were conservative members like Crenshaw, who felt a responsibility to govern. And they're in conservative districts. And then when those guys would agitate conservatives in their districts, mm-hmm. they took it personally. And so some of the more conservative members who were not part of the Freedom Caucus mm-hmm. were particularly resentful. And I think uh, Crenshaw articulated that very well. And there should be more like him. I was just going to say, I was talking to a, a Republican source today who was saying that, you know, in the past, the Freedom Caucus also often stood for things about spending and about economic freedom, but now it it seems like they're turning into more of a MAGA caucus Mm -hmm. more than anything else. And so there is some frustration within the Republican Party on Capitol Hill with that dynamic that's playing out right now. And in fact, you just had Matt Gaetz the other day, a congressman uh, who was part of this performance artist caucus, um, uh, say that uh, when Republicans take the House, in his view, they will, and they certainly have a strong chance of it, uh, he's, he wants Donald Trump to be the speaker. You don't actually have to be a member of Congress uh, to be the Speaker of the House. Right. right. Yeah, and that's been, that's been floating around for a, a little while. And I think Trump's been asked about it, and I can't remember what he said, but he didn't sound super-duper. It's a lot of work, it. that job. <laughs> yeah. Well, he could, just do, he could just get the handoff for the gavel from Pelosi and then resign, right? Right. Um, but yeah, but, but, to, but yes, it is, it is defined. It, this party is defined by allegiance to to Donald Trump, you know, one of the conversations about when Marjorie Taylor Greene says we're not fringe, we're, we're mainstream, what she's really saying is a different version of we are Donald Trump's party. Yeah. And, and, and that's really that's right now that's the driving force. And in some ways, 2022 is going to test at every single level mm-hmm. uh, of the election how true it is. But if yeah. Republicans do take back Congress, it's 2023 that will also be a, a test for them. Because while this is a problem right now for Leader mm-hmm. McCarthy, this will become a much bigger problem oh. for him <laughs> if he has to govern yeah. and he has to deal with these people. But uh, another Republican was telling me today that one thing that he might be able to do is sort of distract them by giving them certain committee assignments or telling them to have oversight over the Biden administration yeah. in order in order to to take the focus of their efforts off of some of the things. We're Winning, is, yeah, yeah, Winning is easy. This, Governing is hard. This yeah. is actually playing out in Georgia with Purdue getting into the race as the Donald Trump sort of yeah. candidate versus and Kemp. Who just is... today he told Axios he would not have certified the state's 2020 exactly. election results if he'd been governor. Unbelievable. That's scary. Thanks one and all for being here. Breaking booster news. New studies just released show a third dose of the Pfizer vaccine. The booster reduces the chance of death by 90%. That's next. Stay with us.
We have some breaking news for you now in our health lead. Two new studies from Israel, just published in the New England Journal of Medicine, find that Pfizer's booster vaccine reduces infections overall tenfold and reduces deaths by 90%. Let's go right to Dr. Megan Ranney. She's professor of emergency medicine at Brown University. And Dr. Ranney, infections down tenfold, deaths down by 90%. That's really significant. Are you surprised by the success of the booster? You know, I'm not. This backs up the data that Israel has been providing to date around the booster. But the more important thing to me, Jake, is not about the success of the booster, but also the success of that primary vaccine series. To me, this study is yet another piece of evidence that those folks who are older or immunosuppressed need to get getting the booster a priority. And for the rest of it, it's a really good idea. But the biggest thing that all of us can do is to get those first two shots, whether it's Pfizer or Moderna. Today, we also saw Pfizer claim that its booster is the best protection against the Omicron variant. Unfortunately, only about a quarter of eligible U.S. adults have gotten their booster shot. I've gotten my booster shot, I should know. So I should note. Are you concerned about what's going to happen as we head into the colder months? So I've gotten my booster as well. I think that all of us, as we're facing the Delta surge across the country and Omicron hitting our shores, it is a good idea. It will protect us from symptomatic infection if we're younger and from that severe disease and hospitalization and God forbid death if you are older or have other high-risk conditions. You know, this study around Omicron It's a test tube study. It's not a real life one. We're still waiting for more data. For now, again, the preliminary data from South Africa suggests that those first vaccine doses protect you from what we care most about, which is severe disease. So real easy message, which is get the vaccine if you haven't. Booster, great idea if you're six months plus out. So the Midwest United States has become a hotspot for COVID. Uh, That's right now the, the primarily the Delta variant, as you know, in Michigan, There are more people hospitalized with COVID now than at at any other point during the pandemic. Minnesota, not far behind Michigan in terms of new cases per capita. What's going on? What's responsible for this? This is all Delta variant. This is the same surge that we saw this summer in the South, now hitting the North as people are going indoors, spending time unmasked, dropping all those other precautions, and in those states, a large percentage of people still unvaccinated. In my home state of Rhode Island, almost all eligible adults are fully vaccinated. And so although we are seeing a surge in hospitalizations, it's much smaller than what we saw last year because the only people that are getting admitted for the most part are the unvaccinated and there aren't as many of them. And COVID hospitalizations in Maine are also at record highs. The the latest surge is far surpassing earlier waves. How do you explain that? So same thing again, it's Delta variant hitting people who have not gotten their vaccine. Now, the lack of a booster for those older folks may be part of the surge, but really it is about the unvaccinated for the most part. Omicron worries me because we're seeing it hit younger folks potentially a little harder. Most of the U.S. right now is not being affected by Omicron in a big way. Although we do think there's some community spread, it is almost all that Delta variant that we've been battling since this summer. Dr. Ranney, thanks so much. As always, coming up, the Joe Biden nominee to combat anti-Semitism globally has been stalled in Congress by a handful of Republicans. What's going on? Stay with us. 
In the politics lead, President Biden lags far behind his most recent predecessors when it comes to getting his administration nominees through Congress. He has just passed his 300th day in office with only 140 executive branch appointees confirmed. Donald Trump had 158 nominees in place at the same point. Barack Obama had 274, almost double. George W. Bush had 326 confirmations at his 300-day mark, as CNN's Jessica Dean reports for us now. Senate Republicans blocking Biden administration nominees are now leading to headlines such as this one in The Atlantic, quote, Republicans are playing partisan politics with America's top anti-Semitism post. It's a game that no one is winning, least of all Jews. We have to stand against the resurgence of this tide of anti-Semitism. President Biden's push to stop hateful anti-Jewish rhetoric and actions following a rash of attacks earlier this year is stalled in the Senate, thanks to some Republicans. There is nobody more qualified than Professor Deborah Lipset to uh, our special envoy. Biden's choice to be the special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism has still not had a committee hearing nearly five months after her nomination. Democrats say Deborah Lipstadt, who serves as Emory Professor of Modern Jewish History and Holocaust Studies, is being blocked by several Republicans. Our Republican colleagues have refused to give her a hearing before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. As Republicans stall, Jewish groups have urged them to act quickly to confirm Lipstadt to the Post. A rare joint statement from three key groups released November 4th read in part, quote, there is no question that Professor Lipstadt has the credentials to deserve a proper hearing before the Committee on Foreign Relations, and that hearing is now overdue. To find this level of agreement about someone on such a contentious issue as anti-Semitism is rare. Journalist Yair Rosenberg covers anti-Semitism for The Atlantic. I don't even really think for them this is about anti-Semitism. It's actually about a much broader uh, effort to stall Biden's nominees and prevent their confirmations. In this case, there's Jewish communities abroad that are protected uh, by the anti-Semitism envoy position. And right now, that office is short-stringed. The top Republican on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Jim Risch, told CNN, quote, I wouldn't say we're holding it up adding they're waiting on additional materials from Lipstadt. An aide said they spoke with her on Tuesday. Risch said some members expressed concerns over some of Lipstadt's tweets. In one from March 14th, she called Senator Ron Johnson's comments, quote, white supremacy nationalism, pure and simple. Lipstadt was reacting to Johnson's comments that he might have been concerned for his well-being during the January 6th attack had the protesters been affiliated with Black Lives Matter instead of being a largely white, pro-Trump crowd. Johnson, who sits on the Foreign Relations Committee, told CNN, quote, I feel like we have so many nominations floating around right now, I really can't comment at this point. Fellow GOP committee member Senator Marco Rubio told CNN he couldn't comment. Are you supportive of her nomination? I'm not sure I've reviewed that nomination yet, to be frank. It doesn't ring an immediate bell. Democrats insist Lipstadt is an expert in her field who's worked with Democratic and Republican administrations and should be confirmed. If calling out anti-Semitism in the past is somehow an obstacle to this nomination, then that would be an amazing set of circumstances because that's what we want this person to do. Menendez is threatening to bypass the committee process and take the nomination straight to the Senate floor if Republicans keep stalling. What's the line that that they would have to cross for you to move to discharge it from the committee? Well, at a certain point in time, 
uh, you know, if we continue on a process, and all I get a sense is that uh, we are running out the clock by our Republican colleagues, then that may force me to do that. And if Democrats do move to discharge that nomination and send it to the Senate floor, a couple of things could happen, Jake. It's very possible that Republicans would join with Democrats and confirm Lipstadt. But if Democrats need to move by themselves and vote along party lines, of course, they have 50 senators and then Vice President Kamala Harris would break that tie. Jake. All right, Jessica Dean, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. We have some breaking news for you now. Former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows is suing. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, as well as the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack. According to the complaint, which was filed late this afternoon, Meadows is asking a federal court to block enforcement of both the subpoena that the committee issued him and the subpoena it issued to Verizon for his phone records. The lawsuit comes after the committee chairman today signaled that the committee would pursue a criminal contempt of Congress referral against Meadows because of his refusal to sit for a deposition in the investigation into the Capitol riot. Coming up next, an issue that hits close to home for too many Americans. Congressman Ted Deutsch of Florida will join us to talk about the tragic overdose death of his nephew and what more can be done. Stay with us. In our national lead, America's drugs are opening up today about the nation's worsening drug epidemic. Today, he spoke with our Dr. Sanjay Gupta about the skyrocketing drug overdose death rate in the United States. We have to look at this as an unacceptable number. Uh, it's unprecedented, and we must have a response that matches that historic number in terms of saving lives. From April, April 2020 to April 2021, More than 100,000 Americans died of drug overdoses, and three-quarters of those were fentanyl deaths. 20-year-old Eli Weinstock is part of this devastating record. In March, he died after taking a legal, unregulated herbal drug that was, though he did not know it, laced with fentanyl. That's what we believe. His mother, Dr. Beth Weinstock, and his uncle, Democratic Congressman Ted Deutsch of Florida, uh, join us Now, and under horrible circumstances, um, but I do admire taking a tragedy and trying to turn it into something positive. We have some people on our staff that have lost kids to cancer and are trying to be active uh, in trying to help other future kids. So let me start with you, Uh, Dr. Weinstock. Your son, Eli, he was a sophomore here in Washington at American University uh, when he died. Tell us a little bit about Eli and and what you know of what led to the the overdose. Well, Eli was um, a sophomore at American and he was doing great. He had a 3.7 GPA. He interned at the Spanish Education Development Center here in Washington. Um, and he was on his way. He had just joined a fraternity. Um, and the circumstances are rather unclear to us at this point. We know that um, he had kratom and fentanyl in his body when he died. He um, died suddenly in the shower one night when he was getting ready to go out with some friends. Um, and, and he was a kid who would never have taken something intentionally that had fentanyl in it. He did not intend to die, just like the 70,000 approximately people who have died from synthetic opioids in the last year. When you say he had, he had kratom, what, kratom. Is that, what is that? Kratom is an herbal supplement um, originally from Southeast Asia, but it can produce some opioid-like qualities. It's a calming substance. Um, and I was unaware that Eli would have taken Kratom, but it is legal in Washington, D.C. Okay. And Congressman Deutsch, yeah. clearly this issue hits close to home 
um, but you're also a member of Congress. Um, so what are you doing to try to reverse these horrific, terrifying overdose numbers? Well, first of all, Jake, um, we're making sure that people understand that this is an emergency and that it is more likely than not closer to them than they know. Right. Um, there, is, there are efforts in Congress to, to focus on fentanyl, the fentanyl that comes from China, uh, comes across the border from Mexico. That's a piece of it. There's a commission that is putting together a high-level commission with the Secretary of Homeland Security, Secretary of State, and others, putting together a, a strategy that will come out in February. But more than anything else, it's helping people understand yeah. what's happening. There are kids who buy what they believe is prescription Xanax or Adderall, sometimes from their friends, sometimes on Snapchat, sometimes on TikTok, that can be laced with, with uh, and, and too often is laced with fentanyl, and it's deadly. The lethal dose of fentanyl can fit on the tip of a pencil. And the DEA administrator uh, announced, when they, they announced the seizure of 10 million pills, every one of them deadly, that the drug, as, as she put it, uh, the drug dealer is no longer on the corner. It's in your pocket. Social media companies need to do more as well. And, and that's, that's one of the things and one of the reasons why um, you guys are here to, to educate people, because... There are kids, obviously Eli was one of them, who think they're taking something harmless. Mm-hmm. And it's not. Uh, 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 one of the bills you're co-sponsoring, which is the Stop Fentanyl Act, it only has one Republican co-sponsor right now. Are people not aware of this? I mean, it's not like Republicans are in favor of fentanyl. I mean, w- yeah. what's going on? Right. There, there's a lot that we need to do. That, that bill is, is one piece of it. Uh, part of it is, is uh, destigmatizing opioid uh, the opioid use, um, addiction, uh, and substance abuse disorders, opioid use disorders and substance abuse uh, disorders. Uh, But we also need to deal with harm reduction. We need kids to be educated, which is what Beth's doing, so that they're in a position. Yes, we have to pass legislation, but we also have to to make available, and this is something that we're also doing through legislation, to try to make available uh, things like fentanyl test strips so that kids are in a position to take precautions to save their lives. Tell us about that, because I know that's important to you, Dr. Weinstein. Yeah, so about nine months after, I'm sorry, about three months, uh, six months after Eli died, we started an organization called Birdie Light. And the purpose of the organization is to get in front of kids, because there's a huge knowledge gap here. Kids from time eternal have tried things, but what they're not realizing now is that the stuff they used to try more than likely has fentanyl in it, And when I get in front of kids, I find out that they don't know this. So, for example, we went to a group of kids at American and back in Ohio where we live, and we said, how many of you know that cocaine can have fentanyl in it? And only uh, two out of three knew that information. So 30% of kids don't know that cocaine can have fentanyl in it. And it's the same numbers for the pills that, that Ted mentioned, the fake Xanax, the fake Adderall, the methamphetamine, fake oxycodones. Kids don't know this, and neither do parents. So when we survey parents, their numbers are even worse. They're completely unaware that these pills that they can get from their friend in the dorm could be laced with fentanyl. Well, hopefully those who are just watching right now are aware of this, and they can tell people too, Mm -hmm. and we will continue to try to help you guys spread the word. I'm Jake. I hope they'll go to the Birdie Light website. What is it? Where is it? BirdieLight.org. Spell we that come so B-I-R-D-I-E-L-I-G-H-T dot org. org. And Eli's name is right in the middle of it. 
All right, well, God bless, and hopefully may his memory be a blessing, and hopefully some good will come from this horrible, horrible experience. Our hearts go out to you. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Jay. Coming up, uh, James Brown said the CIA was spying on him, so CNN sued the CIA to try to find out if the godfather of soul was telling the truth, and we'll bring you the CIA's response. Next. Say it loud. That song from the godfather of soul, James Brown, may have led the CIA to put him under surveillance. It's our pop culture lead today. Brown made the claim that he was being spied on multiple times in his life, including in a letter to then-President Nixon in 1972, with whom he enjoyed a friendship shortly before his death as well. Domestic spying is something the CIA is strictly forbidden from doing. Curiously, the CIA recently responded to that accusation from James Brown in a lawsuit brought by CNN saying that disclosing whether the CIA had records on Brown could, quote, cause serious damage to U.S. national security. Sure it could. As the old saying goes, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't out to get you. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the situation. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.